No one is getting rich from the 1.9% raise likely to come your way next year. But a bigger question might be whether giving everyone the same percentage raise is the right approach in the first place. My next guest argues real incentive raises for top performance would be far more effective in the federal government. Rachel Gresler is a fellow in economics, budget and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. And she joins me now. Ms. Gresler, good to have you on. Thank you. And you're proposing something that the Trump administration has hinted at or tried to get towards with not too much success so far, but that is a pool of money for the really good performers and getting away from this across-the-board idea? Yes. So effectively now, federal employees receive two different pay raises that can be every year or subsequent years. You get an automatic adjustment, a cost-of-living increase, and in addition to that, there are these step increases that they get within their grade that are supposed to be performance-based, but in reality are not performance-based because over 99% of employees get these step increases. And so what I'm proposing is that we look more holistically at total compensation and try to tie that more to performance as it's done in the private sector as opposed to just basing employees' pay on tenure. I guess you could throw into that mix the locality pay, which is covering so much of the nation. I'm wondering what areas are average anymore. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, so there there are some different scales that exist there now, um, and I think we need to look more comprehensively at the full system. Multiple studies have showed, and I'll cite the Congressional Budget Office as a nonpartisan one, but the federal employees as a whole have significantly higher compensation. It's a a 17% premium on average, but that compensation premium is not consistent across all federal workers. So while you have some federal workers, the ones that tend to have the lowest education that have more than a 50% premium, the highest educated workers, those with a professional degree or a doctorate, are actually undercompensated compared to their private sector workers by 18%. And so the government is not running efficiently if it's providing really big premiums to some workers and then providing lower compensation to others. And so we need to take a look at that and find ways that we can provide the compensation that's needed to attract the best and brightest workers, particularly at the top and tech fields and cybersecurity, where we have a gap right now and we're not able to attract the workers that we need, and then scale back the compensation on other ends where we're really overcompensating workers and to no benefit for the federal government because those workers are just receiving a big boost compared to what they would get on the private side. And just looking at the pool for compensating good performers, regardless of where they're starting at, how does the government budget for a thing like that? Because if you say it's going to be, if they say it's going to be 1.9% across the board or whatever it is, 1%, Mm -hmm. that's a number that is tangible and Congress can vote on that number. But performance is fungible and it might be hard to predict what, what it is you're going to pay out in the coming year. Yes. It is. And so there is an argument for having some across-the-board increases just to keep up with the cost of living. Um, And that's something that can be considered, you know, as part of a comprehensive reform. But as you mentioned, performance could vary from year to year. And the the president has recommended that there be a $1 billion performance-based fund that would exist so that federal managers could tap into this when they feel they either need to attract a certain type of worker or they need to reward certain workers for the performance that they have accomplished. And so that fund would exist, and it could potentially just move from year to year so that there could be a rolling balance and you would have more money coming out of it in particular years and less in others. 
So that's just one way to look at this. Um, another way to get some more performance-based initiatives into the measure would be to look at the way that there are the step increases for each scale. And instead of having all those step increases, just have a pay band within there and give managers a little more freedom and flexibility to set the pay of their workers based on the needs of their agency or their department. We're speaking with Rachel Gresler. She's a fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. During your time on Capitol Hill, did you find that both Republicans and Democrats could support this type of idea in some form? I think in general, there is bipartisan support for the notion of pay for performance. So I think both Democrats and Republicans can come together in this. Um, The devil is in the details and the way in which you set that out. I think important things to establish from the onset is a fair system um, where managers know what the rules are, what are the types of goals we're trying to achieve and reward through a performance for pay structure, and do those managers have proper training to know how to implement these awards, how to petition for them. Um, You don't want it to end up being something that at the end of the year, you know, 90% of federal employees get these performance-based awards because that's what the current system with the rating scale is. And so you want it to be something that truly rewards excellence, but you don't want it to be so cumbersome that managers don't want to apply for this because it's too much work on their behalf. Um, And then from federal employees' perspective, and certainly the unions that represent them, they don't want a system that's going to pick winners and losers. Nobody wants a system that's going to pick winners and losers. And so you want the process to be truly fair and to get politics out of it so that you're just looking at, has the employee met this certain goal that we have established, um, and are they exceeding expectations? Because that's what you know a true performance-based reward is supposed to attain. And how much of this change could be affected without statutory work or any of it? Almost nothing could be done without statutory changes. You know, the president can call for not having an across-the-board pay raise and use that as leverage to try and get Congress to buy into more substantial reforms. But really, all of this has to come from Congress as opposed to the administration. And are there any models, say, at the state level that the government, that the federal government could look at? Yes, there are about 20 states, 20 or more states that have implemented at least some form of performance-based pay. Tennessee is one that stands out um, as a more successful program because they took the steps that I talked about in the beginning to say, here's what our new program is to educate um, managers and employees about it. What are the goals and how do we reward pay? And to slowly roll it out, to not just say next year your salary depends entirely on your performance, but to say, here's the new system, here's how we're going to rate employees. Start with just giving the employees the rating and not tying their pay to it at the onset. And then over time, then you put in those actual pay performance metrics and outcomes so that paychecks can reflect performance. And this isn't supposed to be something where your pay is going to vary from year to year. We're more talking about additional incentives that you would receive a bonus for certain performance. So we certainly don't want people to have uncertainty about what their pay will be. That base should stay the same. But as I said, Tennessee was able to do this because they did a really good job training the managers, um, letting employees know what the systems were, what the new metrics are, what they need to accomplish. And they did see some success. You know, the students um, had higher test scores on average when this was implemented among teachers. And their rating system as opposed to rating more than 80% of employees, you know, the highest possible rating, they move that down to something in the 30% scale. So you're getting a better 
assessment of who is truly outstanding. You, know, you can't have 80% of workers and it needs to be a better system. And so they were able to implement that. And I guess maybe the federal government has more flexibility given the proper political will than the states because the uh, unionized employees at the federal level don't bargain over pay and benefits as they often do at the state level where they can even strike in some cases. Exactly. Employee unions are not allowed to bargain over compensation. They do bargain over the rating systems which comes into pay because if an employee is not rated as fully successful, that could be considered an adverse action, and then the union could come in and appeal that. And that is one of the reasons that you've seen, you know, 99 point whatever percent of federal employees rated as fully successful or higher, because the unions can step in and they, the federal managers don't want to have to go through that lengthy and burdensome, burdensome process of having to defend their decision to rate somebody less than that. Rachel Gresler is a fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post a link to more information and to this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.